Well, friends, let me invite you to open up your Bibles uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, Last week, we began a new sermon series in the book of uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, This is a book that is about spiritual awakening. It is about a spiritual renewal that Samuel takes place at at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, at least. It, It takes place during the time of Judges. Specifically during a time of Samson, when he was the judge. And so you can look at, I believe, Judges 19, maybe Judges 13 for more about Samson. But this was a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And here's uh, the priest, Eli. We met him last week. And he sees a woman in, at the tabernacle in Shiloh. And she is weeping. She is crying. And her mouth is moving, but no words are coming out. And he sees her and thinks she's drunk. So here's a priest, the religious leader of Israel, and he could not discern drunkenness from prayer. And so as we think about this passage this morning, we're going to see just how bad it is in the nation of Israel. Not just how bad it is in the nation, but actually how bad it is with the leadership of Israel. That in a way, they are spiritually abusive priests. That they are bullies. That this is a passage where we see the need, the clear need for a spiritual revolution in the life of Israel. And so this morning, it's, we are going to see God beginning to implement his will, his work to bring about the spiritual awakening in, the, in their nation. And so let's begin our passage looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 to the end of the chapter. You can follow along on the wall behind me or in your own worship guide or in your own scriptures. And as I shared last week, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible uh, translation. But let's give our careful attention to this book that is given in love for you. Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord. Or the priests share of the sacrifices from the people. When anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling and plunge it into the container, kettle, cauldron, or cooking pot. The priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This was the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. And if that person said to him, the fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for yourself. The servant would reply, no, I insist that you hand it over right now, and if you don't, I will take it by force. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. And Samuel served in the Lord's presence. This mere boy was dressed in the linen ephod. And each year his mother, would, his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went with her husband to offer the animal sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. May the Lord give you children by this woman in place of the one she has given to the Lord. Then they would go home. The Lord paid attention to Hannah's need, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. 
Now Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with the woman who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He said to them, why are you doing these, these things? I have heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my sons, the, son, the news I hear the Lord's people spreading is not good. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to their father since the Lord intended to kill them. By contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. A man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Didn't I reveal myself to your forefathers' family when they were in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace? Out of all the tribes of Israel, I chose your house to be my priests, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your forefathers' family all the Israelite fire offerings. Why then do you, why do all of you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? You have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. Therefore, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of Israel. I did say that your family and your forefathers' family would walk before me forever. But now this is the Lord's declaration, no longer. For those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disgraced. Look, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your forefathers' house, so that none of your, fa- your family will reach so that none of your family will reach old age. You will see distress in the place of worship, in spite of all that is good in Israel, and no one in your family will ever again reach old age. Any man from your family I do, not cut off from my altar, will bring grief and sadness to you. All your descendants will die violently. This will be a sign that will come to you concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Both of them will die on the same day. Then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever is in my heart and mind. I will establish a lasting dynasty for him. And he will walk before my anointed one for all time. Anyone who is left in your family will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. He will say, please appoint me to some priestly office so I can have a piece of bread to eat. The next verse. The boy Samuel served the Lord in Eli's presence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, as we see in your word, your word deals with heavy things. And Father, we pray that you would speak to us through this passage. That as your word is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in all righteousness, that this word is your word. And we say thank you for it. Father, we pray that you administer to us now as we consider your word and what you have for us this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Bullies. Think about bullies for a moment. A bully could be the playground bully who would mock or physically harass you. It could be the police officer. It could be a teacher, a manager, a parent, or even a pastor. These are, you can be a bully in any one of these things or in any other sphere of life, but specifically, a, bu- a bully is using their power to hurt you. 
And this is a passage that is about this dynamic of a bully, but it's coupled with a person who is using their power from a position of power. That is called abuse. Abuse is when a person in power over you uses that power to hurt and harm you instead of serving and protecting you. Now here we see Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they are bullies. They are priests who are using their spiritual authority for their own gain. But they are nothing but trouble. They did not know God, nor do they care. They desecrate his people and they desecrate his offerings. That they are men, that if they are, from this passage, they are described as wicked men. Other translations say they are worthless men. That here we have worthless men wearing priestly garments. So this is a passage that is actually about spiritual abuse. And spiritual abuse is a theme that is spoken about with great candidness all throughout Scripture. That if you go to the Gospels, you see Jesus rebuking and confronting the Pharisees with very direct words, calling them the spawn of Satan, that they have turned the temple of the Lord into a den of robbers. That's just in the Gospels. And so here we are, though, in 1 Samuel. And as we begin to think about abuse, let's think about, let's acknowledge the fact that abuse is rampant in our culture. It's rampant in our culture and seen even in churches. Perhaps you know stories, including the last name of Driscoll, McDonald, Haggard, or others. But this idea of spiritual abuse is not new to the church's experience. In fact, the Reformation, which birthed the Reformed churches, was partially due to the spiritual abusive climate of the 1500s. That there's this one man, he is selling uh, this thing called indulgences. He says that if you would buy this indulgence, you would free a loved one from purgatory. So it's literally the idea that you can give money to the church and free a person from purgatory. That's actually an unbiblical idea, but there's an addition, uh, there's an idea that's being added to scripture. That is one form of spiritual abuse. And so even though, it's like as I said a moment ago, as spiritual abuse is so rampant in our culture, even though I think none of you have lived in Seattle, some of you have listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. Like the idea is that in our culture today, we are so interconnected that when you hear a story, it can be all over the internet in a moment. It can go viral just with a snap of your fingers. We live in a moment where abuse is rampant. And so as we think about the church, is the church a place of safety? Is the church a refuge? In Numbers, there's this picture of cities of refuge, where there are cities that are sanctuaries to those who are seeking safety. And so the question is, is the church a place of refuge and a city of refuge? Or is the church a place where people are harmed? Is the church a place that fights off wolves? Or do we protect the shepherds at the expense of the sheep? And so as we think about spiritual abuse, let's acknowledge that it is diabolical. 
Yet we have our own sons of Eli, and some of you know this personally by your own stories. You've been hurt by pastors, mentors, and, and, and others who have been in authority over you. And that is, in the Lord's eyes, wicked. And so yeah, Hophni and Phinehas, as we see from this passage, could actually be people in your own stories. And so this morning, as we begin to think about the subject of spiritual abuse, I want to, us to think about this with a certain outline. The outline of wolves, the sling, and shepherds. And I'm using this analogy of, like, what's the work of a shepherd in the life of a church? Of wolves, the sling, and the shepherd. And so first, let's think about this idea of wolves. And what we're seeking to get at with this idea is what is spiritual abuse? As I said earlier, that spiritual abuse is when a person uses their spiritual authority and their power, not for the good of the church, but to actually harm the church. And scripture is clear that here's Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They are wicked, they are worthless, and they do not know God. One of the fundamental callings of pastors and elders is to actually be on guard against wolves. That there are people who are inside the church that will eat you up if they get the chance. And to be very clear, spiritual abuse is horrific to the Lord. It's dishonoring to his name. It's dishonoring. It's dishonoring to him. And it's hurtful to you. As we think about the church, the church is meant to be light amidst darkness, a pasture beside green waters, a safe haven for the poor, the orphan, the widow. And so here we see two priests. As Jesus would describe them, they are wolves. They are wolves. And so let's be very clear how this is the case. They are sinful, sinful and they're deliberately sinning and they're harming the church They're harming. And so the very first thing to do to protect the church against wolves, and the very first step to do in in any abusive situation is to name it for what it is, and it's sin. And we see this sinfulness in a few ways played out for us in this passage. Immediately, first off, they do not know God. Their hearts are full of unbelief. And their job as priests, are they are meant to re- represent the people to God. They're also meant to represent God to the people. That they are representing the people to God through sacrifices. And they're representing God to his people by unpacking his law and explaining to them. But because they are not doing that, that this is immediately an indictment against them. They are priests who do not know God, nor do they even care to go about the work that God has called them to do. And that's because their hearts are full of unbelief. They do not know God. The second way that we see their sinfulness is through entitlement, is through pride, is through greed. And we get a glimpse of Israel's sacrificial system here, that people would bring animals to sacrifice. And some of these sacrifices were actually meant to provide food for the priests because the priests, the Levites, they did not inherit any lands From the promised land, their home, their inheritance was the sanctuary of the Lord. Their inheritance was serving the Lord in his temple. And so what they are doing is the equivalent of today. A pastor who is paid by the church 
And that pastor is using the church credit card for personal expenses and putting his hand into the offering plate to, for pocket money. That is an equivalent of what they are doing in a sense. That the Hophni and Phinehas are taking more than they were allowed to take. They are robbing God's people and they are robbing God. And they are doing exactly what Jesus rebuked the Pharisees of doing for turning God's house into a den of robbers. So we see their sinfulness here and their entitlement and their robbery and their greed and their pride. Another way we see their sinfulness is through physical coercion and violence. If someone would protest, if someone would resist, then their servants would threaten to beat them. Give me what I want or else. We're talking about priests of the Lord doing this to God's people. And it doesn't stop there. Another way we see their sinfulness is through the their sexual sin, exploiting the, the women who are working at the, the tent of meeting. They turn God's house into a brothel. And so you have to ask yourself, where is Eli in this? Where is Eli? He's actually complicit. He's enabling. And commentators wonder if Hophni and Phinehas learned their spiritually abusive ways from their father. And one of the reasons for that is when Eli dies, he's described as a, an obese man. And so Eli, that's what they're wondering, that he is one who has profited from their abuse. We see Eli show up and he does rebuke his sons. What are you doing? If someone sins against their brother, there can be some intercession. But if you serve against sin against God, there is no intercession. There is some form of rebuke. But it's ineffective. He just speaks words to them. And if another, he does nothing. He does not use his spiritual authority or his spiritual power to serve the church, but actually protect his sons. And to think further about Eli, as I mentioned earlier, that when he first mentioned, met Hannah, that he could not discern the difference between drunkenness and prayer, but Hannah, in her, her response to Eli, he says, do not think of me as a wicked woman. And yet how Eli's sons are known and, and indicted by God is that they are wicked men. And so the idea that we see here is that here's even Eli, and he cannot discern wickedness versus righteousness. And so as we continue with this question of what is spiritual abuse, we see this in their sinfulness. Let's have a clarifying question of what is not spiritual abuse. There's one writer, her name is Diane Langberg, and I recommend her writing to you. She's a tour de force who has been caring for people who have been abused. I think she's been caring for people who have been abused since the 70s. And she writes this, is that you cannot be an abuser accidentally. You can make a mistake accidentally. Perhaps a new person comes to church, shares something with you. They were hurt and they told you they were hurt by you. And that's perhaps you were not listening well. But when they come to you, you have the opportunity to respond, to show that you care, to show that you, that you love them, and so on. You cannot be an abuser accidentally, is her point. And I bring this up because there is a cultural tendency to call every hurt abuse. 
But what happens when that, when you do that, or what happens when others do that, you actually injure true victims of true abuse. Because spiritual abuse is about how leaders, spiritual leaders, use their power. Is it to be a professional or is it to be a pastor? Is it to be a protector of the flock or someone to profit from the flock? Is it to pretend to be someone whom you're not or to be a disciple of Jesus? And so when we think about this idea for a pow- of power for a moment, look at Jesus Christ. He had power. He told the, the storm at the sea to stop. He said, stop it. Peace, be still, shut up. That's, that's how he told the storm. But Jesus used his power to become a baby. He took on a form of a servant. If you look at the Apostle Paul, you see this same dynamic that he boasted in his weakness because that is actually when God's strength is seen. And so as we think about power, it's like the point of our power is actually meant to serve one another. And spiritual abuse is when you use your power to hurt others, when those who are in spiritual leadership hurt others. And so how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this? Like one response to spiritual abuse is actually to remove yourself from church altogether, to remove yourself from spiritual submission. This could be a rejection of that authority. It could be like where you say, hey, there's no distinction between pastors and members. But just right there is why is there a stricter judgment for those who are spiritual leaders of the church? Why is there a stricter judgment for those who teach God's word? See, when you reject spiritual authority as a God-given design, you actually make people more vulnerable. Because God's the one who made power. He gave a design to it, and that design for power is to protect and to serve each other. So don't reject spiritual power. That is, the idea of rejecting spiritual power is not a, a proper response. Another proper response, which is, horrific is to circle the wagons to hide abuse because you don't want the bad press and that's horrific in God's sight but we see both of these responses to spiritual abuse within our culture today but there's another thing to consider how do you respond to abuse and the question is how does the Lord respond to abuse and this is where we go to the sling the second point here and look this is verses 27 and on after we have considered the spiritual abuse of Hophni and Phinehas, how does the Lord respond to Eli and his sons? He, a man from God comes to Eli and says, The Lord has made you a priest. And I did once say that you and your, for, your far, forefather's family would walk before me forever, but now no longer. See, the Lord responds with the sling. The Lord responds to spiritual abuse with judgment and discipline. And 1 Peter 4, 7 tells us that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. That judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Here, here's a, an illustration to help us understand why that's the case. If you go to the grocery store and you find spoiled meat, what do you do with that spoiled meat? If it were that rotten fruit or rotten vegetable at the grocery store, what do you do with it? Do you go find someone and say, hey, this food is spoiled, or do you just leave it on the shelf and walk on? But then think about your own house. If 
you open up your refrigerator and you find some um, mold or moldy cheese, you find some spoiled uh, tomatoes, you, you find some really smell, smelly meat, what do you do with it? Are you going to eat it? Are you going to leave it there? No, you pick it up and throw, throw it away. This is a picture uh, that we take greater and deliberate focus with what happens within our own home. And judgment begins in the house of the Lord for a very specific reason. And that reason is, is that God created his home to be a city of refuge. That God created his family to be a blessing to the nations. To be the salt and the light in the world. A city on a hill. That is God's design for his family, for his house. And he gave pastors, he gave elders to equip the saints for the ministry and to protect the church from wolves. And God very specifically says in Galatians 6, 7, that he is not mocked. And so when abuse happens within the church, his integrity, his character, his promises, and his love is on the line. And John 17 puts it very clearly that if the church is not known for their love, then the world has the right to question God's love. That's John 17. That God designed the church to be a place of refuge, a place of safety, a place where there is peace besides still waters. And that means that God also designed the church to be a place of accountability, where leaders use their power for the good of the church. And the point here to think about for a moment is that if you don't sow accountability, you actually sow abuse. That Roman says that the wages of sin is death. In other words, if you sow sin, you reap death. If you sow comfort, ease from ill-gotten gain, then you will reap your own downfall. And so as we think about this accountability as a church, it's actually very healthy it's very appropriate for us to think about being Presbyterian for a moment. Because our Presbyterian church government, it's not perfect and it's far from it, but it's actually helpful to point out the layers of accountability within Presbyterian governance. For example, I'm a pastor. I'm a member of Presbytery. I'm accountable to Presbytery. And that the Presbytery is also accountable to our national assembly. That as our a local church, we are governed by uh, the session, which is including myself as a pastor and the elders. And we're called the session, just random Presbyterian trivia. We're called the session because Jesus is currently in session, reigning over all things. And the session is acknowledging that fact that Jesus reigns over this church. And so pastors and elders are held accountable to one another and even to the church. And we hold the church accountable to your own membership vows that you voluntarily take. And so here within our Presbyterian governance, there are layers of checks and balances, guardrails. And they are not perfect in, at all. That They are tested. They are evaluated and even perfected like every year. And as like roughly in our denomination, 1,500 churches follow the same process. But taking a step back as we think about the sling, there are, what happens when the wicked prosper? When people do, are not judged? When abusers get away with it? 
There will, time, well, there will come a time of judgment when God says that vengeance is mine, that the Lord returns to judge the living and the dead is what we say in our Apostles' Creed, that we trust God to judge to judge wickedness and give wickedness what they deserved. And here is Eli's family, not just his sons, but his family. They are judged and they are clearly removed. They are cut off from being priests in Israel. And the Lord responds to abuse through punishing wickedness by judgment. But that is actually not the only way that the Lord responds to abuse. The sling is not the only way that God responds to abuse. That if you keep going in verses 35 and on, the Lord responds to abuse by raising up new leadership for the church. And this is seen with the promise of a new shepherd. I'm using the word shepherd here because within scripture, shepherds, specifically from Ezekiel and in 1 Peter 5, that shepherds is the analogy that scripture uses to talk about leadership. That of leadership. And so, but as you, we go through this book of Samuel, where is Samuel in this passage? After every instance of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, we have a quiet scene of Samuel. Verse 18, Samuel served in the Lord's presence. Keep going. The boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. And, and I read chapter 3, verse 1, because after we see this promise of a new shepherd, we read the boy Samuel served the Lord in Eli's presence. And, but the, this idea of Samuel serving in the Lord's presence, that word serving is actually a priestly word. It's the idea of ministering to God's people. And we even see another way that Samuel is, being, is a picture of a priest by what he's wearing in verse 18. The mere boy is wearing a linen ephod. He's wearing a priestly garment. Something else just to kind of like note here. That before the, in verse 11, which we did not read, we, we read that the boy served the Lord in the presence of the priest of Eli. And, but if you keep going like to verse 21, you see that the boy grew up in the presence of the Lord. There's a shift, even in this passage, where the Eli, excuse me, Samuel is not under the tutelage of Eli. Samuel is actually under the tutelage of the Lord. And so it's this picture that Samuel is serving the Lord. He is being a priest. He is learning to be a priest by being taught by the Lord. And so God is actually showing us something, that he is raising up leaders. That is a part of his response to abuse within the church, that God is raising up shepherds who are after his own heart to protect the church from wolves. That is how the prophets clearly put it. So the picture here is that godly leaders, let's focus on the word godly, that godly leaders are a gift to the church. That these are leaders whom the Apostle Paul says that they spend themselves for you. 2 Corinthians 12, 15, that I will gladly spend myself and be spent for you. That here's Paul, he is mocked, he is slandered, he is stoned, he is shipwrecked, he is having, being conspired against and so much more. Why? To serve, to protect, and care for the church. 
The, the, that's the picture of leadership that we have within Scripture, that these leaders shepherd the flock, as Peter puts it, not out of duty or coercion, but zealously and delightfully, not for their own economic gain, but for their joy. That, that Godly leaders are a gift to the church. And Scripture is very clear that no leader is perfect. Samuel's not perfect. Paul was not perfect. Peter was not perfect. That sins need to be confessed, sins need to be confronted, and God's grace and strength is actually seen amidst our humility and our embrace of weakness as we humbly lean on him. And so what God is saying here in Samuel is this, is that I will raise up for myself a faithful priest he will do whatever is in my heart and mind, and I will establish a lasting dynasty for him. And he will walk before my anointed one for all time. But who is God talking about? We haven't gotten to the end of Samuel's story, but he's not talking about Samuel. Because the nation of Israel is not happy with Samuel when you get to 1 Samuel 7 and 1 Samuel 8. The, the nation of Israel says, give us a king after every, uh, like, just to make us like every other nation. So the Israelites are actually unhappy with Samuel and his sons. They ask for a king. And so Samuel is not the everlasting priest. Like commentators uh, think that the priest that's being spoken about is some, a priest named Zadok in Kings. But we also know how scripture is written, how every passage speaks about Jesus. We know that this is actually about Jesus. That Jesus is our great high priest. That Jesus is the one who is faithful to you amidst your faithlessness. That he advocates for you. He prays for you. That he became what we are so that we might become what he is. That he is able to sympathize with you with all your struggles and trials because he has gone through those same trials and yet he has not sinned. That Jesus is the good shepherd. He leads you beside still waters. He will be beside you as you go through the shadow of, the, of death. And that when you are hurting and when you are lost, he is moved with compassion to come towards you. That there's this beautiful picture that Jesus, when he sees the crowds of Israel during his life, he sees that they are people who are hurting, that they are harassed, that they are mocked. And as he sees their hurt, he has compassion for them because they are people who do not have a shepherd. And that, that compassion moves him towards them. And friends, you're here this morning. You are hurting. You are tired. You're beaten up by sin. You're being attacked by the evil one. And you have a shepherd who is coming to protect you. He is the good shepherd. He is the one who has paid the penalty for your sins. He is the one who has, has given you his spirit so that the power of sin will be broken in your life. And one day, uh, we have this promise that one day he will return again. And we hold on to this promise that all things will be made new. That he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That he will, he will heal our hurts. He will redeem our pain. And this is because he is the good shepherd. And this is the one whom we are here to worship. This is the one whom we follow. He's the good shepherd. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for 
your son, Jesus Christ. That he is the good shepherd who leads us. Who, and because he is our shepherd, we have everything that we need. That we have your love, we have your protection, we have your spirit. And so, Father, we pray that you administer to us. That we would use whatever power we have, whatever agency and voice that we have, that we would use this to love you, to love one another, to protect your people, to care for others, so that your church would be a city of refuge, that your church would be green pastures, a home for the poor, the fatherless, and the widow. So, Father, we pray that iron works would be described this way. And we pray that you would give us hearts as well, that our own lives and our own families and homes would be like this as well. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.